Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hosea, chapter 1. Hosea, chapter 1. If you are looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 953. And uh, before we dive into Hosea this morning, I, I just want to take a moment to you know, acknowledge the thing that is probably on a lot of our minds this morning, and that is what happened in our nation's capital this week. Um, among other things, it ought to drive followers of Christ to prayer. Uh, we've certainly done that, and we're going to continue to do that. Um, today at 4 o'clock, we're going to kind of, instead of our normal small group time where we split up and discuss this morning's sermon, we're going to have a, a guided time of prayer for our nation so that's going to be today at 4 o'clock. And then uh, this Wednesday, um, I am uh, issuing a, a, uh, a loving and gentle call for fasting and prayer. Now, I'm very mindful of the fact that the New Testament warns us about, you know, mandating fasts or anything like that. But I'm simply just inviting you to join me in a time of, of fasting and prayer on Wednesday. And so what that's going to look like is, you know, I understand that there are people who have, you know, blood pressure or, or blood sugar issues and, you know, by all means do what's wise for you in a, in a health sense. But at the time when you would typically be eating breakfast on Wednesday morning, take some time to pray. At the time when you would typically be eating lunch on Wednesday, take some time to pray. And then Wednesday night... At 6.30, when we would typically have prayer meeting, we're going to have a fellowship meal, and we're going to break our fast together and have a time just of, of fellowship and, and uh, prayer together Wednesday. So today at 4, we're going to pray together in a guided sense. Wednesday, we're going to have a, a day of prayer and fasting, which we will break at, at prayer meeting with a fellowship meal. And so, uh, so this is a time for us to pray. There are times when we ought to, we, when we simply have to do, what uh, Jehoshaphat did in Second Chronicles 20 when he prayed, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Or what Nehemiah did when he said, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And God commands us in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The other reason I wanted to acknowledge uh, what happened this week is because even on a so-called normal day, uh, it can be very tempting for American Christians to read Old Testament prophecies as if they were primarily about America. Um, but the best way to apply the Word of God is not always by seeing ourselves at the center of its story. And so we need to resist the urge to imagine that God spoke this word only for our generation and only for our nation, while at the same time, we need to humble ourselves before God and ask, Lord, how does this apply to us? How does this apply to our generation and to our nation? What sins are we guilty of? What sins can we forsake? And how can we pursue faith and faithfulness in light of what we hear in this word. So that's what I'm praying God will help us to do this morning. So let's read from Hosea chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 1. 
the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Let's pause there and we'll pray together. Lord, we ask for your help this morning to hear this word clearly and with a sense of humility, Lord, that we would not hear a condemnation of someone else's sin before we hear a condemnation of our own. And Lord, I pray that you would jolt us uh, and awaken us to the depth of our own sin so that we might be jolted into our need for repentance and so that we might receive the restoration that you offer to us. So God, would you work through your word this morning to, to drive us by your spirit to increased faith and increased faithfulness. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, when I was in college, I, I knew this guy who, anytime he told any kind of story, even the most mundane of stories, he would give way too much backstory. You could ask him, what did you eat for breakfast this morning? And he would start with something like, well, it all starts when I was 10 years old. And, okay, no, 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 I don't need to know all that. Just tell me what you had for breakfast. So some people are just like that, and others tend to do the opposite. They don't give enough context when telling stories. And so without enough backstory, the story itself can be confusing. Too much backstory, and it can be boring. And so what I want to try to do this morning is thread the needle and find a, a helpful middle ground when it comes to introducing us to the book of Hosea. Enough backstory to where we can make sense of what he's saying, but not so much that we kind of get bogged down in the details and think, well, what does this have to do with anything? There are, there are a couple of things that we absolutely need to know in order even to make sense of what God says through the prophet Hosea. So I want to give us some context, and I want to do that through the lens of two prominent Old Testament figures who have come before, Abraham and Moses. So there is an echo here of one of the promises that God made to Abraham. God says in verse 10, 
Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. That sounds an awful lot like what God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. It is difficult to make sense of the book of Hosea if you don't know that God has made in the past binding promises like this to His people. The second prominent figure that's, that's helpful to know about is Moses. Moses enters the story at a time when Abraham's descendants were multiplying, as God said they would, but they were not living under the blessing that God said they would live under. And they were certainly not living in the land that God said He would give to them. They were living in Egypt, and they were living under the oppressive hand of Egypt's Pharaoh. And so God raises up Moses to redeem them from that slavery and to bring them to the place that He was preparing for them. And when God brings them out in that intervening period between the time when He brings them out of Egypt, but before they get to the promised land, God makes a covenant with them. Just as He had made a covenant with Abraham, He makes a covenant now with Abraham's descendants. And what happens in Exodus 18 and Exodus 19 is this, this story that Hebrew marriages would later be sort of modeled after. Because Moses leads the people of Israel to Mount Sinai like a father walking his daughter down the aisle. And the Lord instructs Moses to tell them, this is from Exodus 19, "...if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant..." You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so God gives promises to them. He says, here's what I've done for you. Here's what I'm covenanting to do for you. And then God also gives them vows that they are to keep. We call those vows the Ten Commandments. He gives them the law, and they swear to keep them. They say, yes, we will obey these. Yes, we will keep these. And God promises them... I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. We simply cannot grasp the point of the book of Hosea if we miss that covenant relationship where God says, I will be your God, and here's what I will do for you, here's what I have done for you, and you will be my people, and here are the covenant vows that you are making to me. And so we, we, we need to see here in the, the, the background to the book of Hosea the, the jealousy of God, that God is jealous for His people. He tells them in Exodus 34, verse 14, "...you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God." Now that's one of those truths that has tripped a lot of people up. How is it good for God to be jealous? Because we tend to think of jealousy as akin to, to insecurity. You know, jealousy is something that someone has when they are too emotionally insecure and needy. But God's jealousy is not a flaw. It is one of His many excellencies. So I want to try to define God's jealousy. It does not arise from a need to be uh. loved. His jealousy arises from the purity of His love, that God is like a loving husband who is not at ease with a wife who commits adultery. So anytime I think about divine jealousy, I think 
what would it be like if I were to go to my wife and say to her, I am perfectly content if you would like to go out and have other men that you, you know, whatever with. That would not be very loving, would it? For, for, for me, me to, to care, care so little about, about her, her and to and care so little about the vows that we made to one another that I would say to her, I'm okay if you would like to break, break those vows, vows on occasion. Because, because last, last I, checked, I checked, when we, when we stood, stood before, before God and the congregation, and the congregation what, we what we promised was, was forsaking all others, I will cling only to you. Forsaking all others, I will cling only to you. So, so God, God is, like is like a loving, loving husband, husband who is, who is not, not at ease with, with a wife who commits, who commits adultery. adultery. True covenant, covenant love insists, insists on, on faithfulness. faithfulness. And, this and this jealousy, jealousy does, does not arise, arise from a need within God, God to, to be loved. God does not need His people to love Him or to worship Him. He's not this insecure, needy person who's sitting in heaven thinking, I just need people to love me. I just need people to worship me. He was perfectly fine for all of eternity without anybody else loving Him or worshiping Him. Just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving one another. So God is sufficient in Himself. He does not need anything outside Himself. And yet He also knows how disordered our lives will be if we try to put anyone but Him at the center of our lives and at the center of our world. That is why God insists on His people worshiping Him alone, not for His good, but for ours. But of course, Israel was not faithful to the covenant that God made with them, and that is sadly what God helps them see through Hosea's marriage. You know, when you think about what God asked the Old Testament prophets to do, many of them had very unenviable tasks. God told Isaiah straight up, these people aren't going to listen to you. You're going to have a long, hard ministry, and you're not going to see any fruit come from it. All you're going to have to lean on, Isaiah, is that you're doing what I'm asking you to do. And what does Isaiah say? Here I am, send me. God gives Hosea at least as difficult a task as that, if not more so. Because not only does Hosea have the unenviable task of, of detailing Israel's sin, but he also has to dramatize it in his own life. Hosea's marriage to Gomer is going to serve as a kind of parable for God's marriage to Israel. So just try to put yourself in his shoes as the word of God comes to him in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now some people have understood that to mean that God wanted Hosea literally to go and marry a prostitute. Um, it could mean that. It could, that could be what God meant by that, or it could be simply that Hosea, excuse me, that Gomer was going to be adulterous, that she was going to be unfaithful to her husband. Either way, the bottom line is that God tells Hosea up front that she's going to be unfaithful. She's going to cheat on you, Hosea. And 
and yet he still tells him to marry her. And the purpose of this is to illustrate what the nation of Israel has done and is doing by forsaking the Lord. They are, in, in God's own words, they are committing great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So Israel has committed spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. Now, if you find yourself thinking, this seems like an awfully scandalous, maybe even crass way for God to speak about His own people, you are absolutely getting the point. That is the point. It is meant to be provocative. It's meant to be shocking. Because in Hosea's day, Israel was living through this remarkable period of peace and prosperity. Israel is in this time when everything is just great. Everybody's stock portfolio is up. We haven't had a war in a while. There, there's not any big nation breathing down our neck. Everything seems fine. And so you can imagine that, that many people, it would be easy for them to see this as a sign of God's blessing. Look at how much God has blessed us. Look at how much He's pleased with us. We can see it by all this peace and all this progress and all this prosperity. But then the word of the Lord comes to Hosea like a bolt of lightning out of a dark sky. The land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, when you ask yourself, what specifically had the people of Israel done? The answer is, it's not like they were irreligious. It's not that they had all become atheists or something like that. It's not even that they had stopped claiming the name of the Lord. It's not like they said, we're no longer the Lord's people. We're now going to just go with Baal. No, the problem is that they were dividing their loyalties. They said, we want to have the Lord, but we're just going to hedge our bets with Baal just in case. And so that's really what spiritual adultery is. It is not on the surface uh, a wholesale turning away from God. It is dividing our loyalty and trust between God and something or someone else. It's like an adulterous wife who wants to go out during the day and do God knows what with who knows what and then still be able to come home and have a nice warm bed and a nice, nice warm meal and all that kind of stuff. Trying to have it both ways. Israel said that they trusted the Lord, but they hedged their bets with other gods. They said that they trusted in the Lord, but they, in fact, were engaged in all these kind of political alliances and gamesmanship to try to advance themselves. God calls this spiritual adultery. And just as shocking as what God tells Hosea to do is the fact that He does it. Verse 3 says, So he went and took Gomer the daughter of Diblaim, and she, and she conceived, conceived and, bore and bore him a son. son. The son, son is, is given, given a very, very ominous, ominous name, name Jezreel. Jezreel. Jezreel was a place where uh, a former Israelite king had uh, oppressed uh, a common Israelite man named Naboth and had stolen his vineyard, and great bloodshed took place there, including the blood of the king. Jezreel was a place that was synonymous with bloodshed. bloodshed. 
and it is emblematic, emblematic of, what of what Israel had done. Had done. The, nation the nation who had who committed, committed themselves, themselves to the way of the, way of the Lord had, had instead, instead given birth, birth to bloodshed. bloodshed. And notice, and notice the, difference the difference between, between verse, verse 3 and, and verse 6. Verse 3, verse 3 says, says that Gomer conceived and bore him, Hosea, a son. son. Verse, verse 6, 6 says she conceived again and bore a daughter. A daughter. And, that, and this, this is one of those, those you know, which, which of the, the, what's, what's the difference, the difference between, between these two, two pictures? pictures? The difference, the difference is, is, verse 3 says, says very clearly that she conceived and bore a son to Hosea. Verse 6, there's an open question. Whose child is it? Maybe it's Hosea's child, maybe it's not. We don't know. Look at the, Look middle, at the of middle of verse 6. The Lord, Lord said, said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will, I will no more have mercy on the house, on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. At all. And if there, and if there was, was a question about whose child No Mercy was, um, the next one kind of hints even more at that, because this time, notice verse 9, the Lord said, Call his name Not My People. <laughs> so she, she conceives again, she bears a son, and this kid's name is not my people. He's not mine. And God says the reason for this is because you are not my people and I'm not your God. I mean, that is a, that is a shocking thing for God to say because it's a reversal of what He had told them when He made a covenant with them through Moses, when He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now He says, you are not my people and I am not your God. So... What, what is God up to? Has he, has he given up on His people? The very existence of this book is proof that God had not given up on His people. If He had truly given up on them, He would have never sent His word to them through Hosea. And so the purpose behind this painful dramatization, and behind these harsh words, the ultimate purpose is restoration. But before God can restore His people, He first has to awaken them to their need for repentance, because you can't have restoration if there's not first repentance. And before they can repent, He first has to awaken them to the reality of how deeply they have sinned and wandered away from Him so that they will see how far they have gone away and they will see how desperately they need to turn back to Him. So God has to shock them into reality. He has to shock them into understanding the truth. He has to jolt them out of their blindness and self-deception by telling them the truth as painful as it may be. That is what a loving father does for his children. He does not tell them what they want to hear. He tells them what they need to hear. In the days since this past Wednesday, as I've been praying about what God would have me to say this morning, I've been more and more convinced that the word that God gave to Israel through Hosea is an especially timely and providential word for, for you and me. This is the text that I was planning on preaching. This is the text that you know, had been on the calendar for a long time. And this, in the providence of God, is a very, very timely word for us. As I was watching um, the news on Wednesday, at times, if I'm being honest, I felt afraid, at times disgusted, at times angry, and overall I felt 
very, very sad. Um, but there was one image that still, to this moment, sticks in my mind and makes me sadder than anything else that I saw and have seen since then. That amongst that, that mob of people who broke through police barricades and stormed into the Capitol were, were many indications that at least some of these people consider themselves Christians. And the, the image that I'm thinking of right now was uh, of a man who paraded through one of the chambers of Congress with a Christian flag in his hand. And as I was thinking about that, it reminded me of being in a U.S. history class in college and being assigned, you know, this reading in our textbook. And, and this, there was this picture in our textbook that our class had a very long discussion about. And I can still to this day see this picture as if I was looking at it right now. It's a picture of the inside of what appears to be a church or maybe some kind of community center. It's a black and white picture. And what you see in the picture is there's, there's a crowd of people uh, with white hoods on their heads. And emblazoned above them, there's a banner. And on the banner are the words, Jesus saves. We sang the song this morning, Jesus saves. That's what was above their head. Jesus saves. And there is something deeply wrong if people think that these things can be consistent with one another. And it's not new. The black and white picture attests to that. So for those of us who claim the name of Jesus, we have got to take a look in the mirror and we need to ask ourselves, where does my allegiance lie? I want to I put something on the screen for us to think about together. And that is this, two statements. It is good to let your religion inform your politics, but it is incredibly dangerous to let your politics inform your religion. And too many people have done the second one instead of the first one. And what it has led to is what God calls whoredom, spiritual adultery, idolatry. The people of God are called to be people of truth. We claim, we claim to follow, to follow someone, someone who said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God. To too many people, that sounds impractical and unappealing. Too many people would rather pursue power and domination in the name of Jesus rather than peace and truth. We claim, we claim to, follow to follow someone who said, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. That is from the mouth of Jesus. But too many people would rather be more like John Wayne than like Jesus. God tells us in 2 Corinthians 10 that though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. And so we cannot let our values and our, and our opinions, opinions and, and even, even our, our understanding, understanding of truth, truth itself, itself be shaped constantly by the world and think, and think that, that we will, will at the same, same time be walking in faithfulness to God. I cannot speak to everyone. I can speak to the people who are hearing my voice right now, and I am urging you, let us be very sure that we are having our understanding of what is true and just and righteous shaped more by the Word of God than by what we hear from any politician or from any pundit on the TV or on the radio or on the Internet. 
We need to look in the mirror and ask God to show us where we have divided our loyalties and our trust. To show us where we have, even while claiming His name, wandered away from Him. Part of what grieves me about what happened in Washington this past Wednesday is the hopelessness that it reveals. Because the kind of raw anger that was on display arises when people think that their only hope is in a particular political outcome. And when it becomes clear to them that that outcome is not what they wanted, they're driven to desperate measures. And so they are absolutely hopeless and have no other recourse except to do something extreme. And yet, it is awfully tempting for a similar kind of hopelessness and despair to creep into the hearts even of those who don't do something nearly as drastic. So even if you don't go and, and beat a police officer over the head with a fire extinguisher, even if you don't rush into the halls of Congress with zip ties in your hand, it is still just as tempting to, to see what has happened and to feel hopeless and despair. So let me just say in love that if, if we find ourselves in despair because our preferred candidate did not win, then we need some perspective. We need an eternal perspective because four years is a drop in the bucket in comparison with eternity. And the United States of America is a drop in the bucket in comparison with the kingdom of God. Elections are consequential, but they are not the end of the world. And anybody who tries to convince you otherwise is probably trying to use you for their own ambitions. So we need a bigger perspective than America, and we need a longer perspective than four years. We need to lift our eyes and behold the eternal God and the Lamb who was slain and whose blood has ransomed for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. God is going to have a lot of harsh things to say to the people of Israel in this book. But I don't want you to miss the offer of restoration in verse 10. He's just finished saying, I'm not going to have mercy on you. And I'm not going to call you my people anymore. And then he says in verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. What God is reminding them of in that verse is that He has not broken His promise to Abraham. And He will not. He has not gone against His word. He is still God and He is still true to every promise He has made. And so no matter how harshly God denounces our sin, He is a loving Father who is acting to discipline those whom He loves. And no matter how harshly God denounces our sin, there is no sinner He is unwilling to forgive and to welcome if they will turn from their sin and return to Him. There is absolutely no reason why a child of God should ever feel hopeless. And I say that to you as someone who, I've said this many times to you before, as someone who has struggled tremendously with depression and who at times has felt very hopeless. 
And yet I'm saying to you what I often have to say to myself, which is that there is never any reason why a child of God should ever feel hopeless because we're not. We're not hopeless. We have the hope of the promises that God has made to us, which are just as certain as the rising of the sun. They're even more certain than that. And so as long as there is breath in our lungs and blood in our veins, it is never too late for repentance. And there are many people who need to hear that truth today, that they feel like they have gone too far. And as long as there's breath in your lungs and blood in your veins, you haven't. You haven't gone too far. It is not too late to turn around and to come back to Jesus. And as long as we are on this side of heaven, none of us have yet arrived. We all need to continue putting off sin and putting on righteousness. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. Again, we're going to have some time tonight when we are going to just commit ourselves to pray for what has happened um, in our nation's capital. Um, but, but right now what I want to, to point you to is not what happened, and, and even as I'm saying this, I'm aware of how corny this is about to sound, okay? But what I want to point you toward is not what happened in... Washington, D.C. on this past Wednesday, what I want to point you to is what happened on the hills outside Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. That a man named Jesus Christ, who eternally existed as God, had become flesh and lived for 30-some years as a man, as a carpenter in Nazareth. And he never, ever committed a single sin. He never disobeyed his parents he never thought any wayward thought, never a sinful deed. And yet he was walked up a hill and his hands and his feet were nailed to a cross and he was lifted up naked for all to see in utter shame and humiliation. And he died in my place and in your place to bear the condemnation that you and I deserve so that we could say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that we could say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loves me and gave himself for me. He was put to death for our sins, and he was raised for our justification. He was raised from the dead that you and I might be right with God. This is what the world needs to hear. This is what our community needs to hear. This is what you and I need to hear. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that in your great mercy and love that you humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross. And Lord Jesus, I'm reminded this morning that you have commanded us who will follow you to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to come after you and to walk in your ways. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that what would be before our eyes every day would be you, your character and your word, and um, that we would strive each day 
to walk in ways that would please and honor you. Lord Jesus, I'm also aware that there may be someone who is hearing my voice right now who, if they're honest with themselves, they know in their heart of hearts that they're not right with you, that they have been trusting in other things. Maybe they say that they've been trusting in you, but they've been hedging their bets with other things, trying to work their way to you. And so I pray right now, Spirit of God, that you would convict them of that and that you would see how, how empty those efforts are and that they would humble themselves before you and, and plead for forgiveness, that they would simply say to you, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Lord, um, for those of us who are walking with you, I pray that you would help us to walk in increased faith and faithfulness. Draw us closer to you. Give us wisdom in these days, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.